All right, Joe, we're back in headquarters so a it, week a week hence. A week hence. So it turns out, I don't know if you saw the little thing I sent you, it turns out we are going to get flying cars. <laughs> I did see that you did sent you me something. I, I've not, I hadn't had a chance to read it. No. Yeah, apparently um, this is a part of Uber's uh, corporate plan is we're going to get uh, we're going to get not only uh, surface uh, traveling drone cars, uh, we're going to get a drone uh, aircraft to take us hither and yon. I'm very excited. Great. Well, but, another, another piece that I saw was all about um, the, you know, um, I'll link it up, uh, uh, that self-driving cars are coming. Look out, public transit. Mm. You're dead. Something. You know, it's this exactly what we kind of talked about. Right. So, have you listened back at all to what we recorded? So, so today is um, we're about to record a new one. We're not even going to say what's going to. We're not even going to tease it. So. Right. And I'm going to hit publish in just a few minutes after we finish this yeah, to yeah. send this off. And this is a conversation that we had live in front of a live studio audience. Can do it live at the Tech Law Institute about, and we chose to talk about self-driving cars. We did. We had a lot of interesting um, comments that came up both in the Q&A and then after, after we hit stop and people came up afterwards and wanted to, to talk. But uh, did you get a chance to listen to time? Of course we, we were in a panel slot and we used that time. I think pretty well. I enjoyed the conversation a lot. And then as you say, afterward, there were people who were very stimulated by the ideas that we were talking about and, and, and we enjoyed some more further conversation. You know, I, I, I did listen back, you know, as I was editing it and getting it ready to go. And I was (laughs) one of the interesting, I, I felt at, right after we finished that we had talked more substance than we did. I felt like we got deeper into it than we actually did. Oh, interesting. And, and I think that's in part because you and I had such a long conversation on the drive up. In the car, yeah. And so, I, oh boy, I wish we'd recorded that well. As well. I, that would have been, it could have been a nice supplement to it. Um, yeah. And we can, look, I think this, if the enthusiasts for this uh, technology are right... Um, yeah. we're going to have another opportunity. <laughs> in fact, we might have more than one additional opportunity right. to talk about this topic. Well, how did you, how did you feel? Did you get a chance to listen back? I keep I asking not. you and I keep uh, interrupting I you. Not. Yeah. I tend to listen to these after you make them public. Right. So despite the fact that I edited it and sent it to you and said. Yeah. I listened you, to maybe a minute of it. And then I, <laughs> I there were other things I had to do. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Um, and being, um, ill, as you know, has put me behind the eight ball. I know, I know, um, <clears throat> I know. Which continues. But uh, but I'm sure it's great. So yeah. So what did you think of the comments that we got afterwards that didn't make the Q and A, the formal Q and A? One of them. I mean, so we had a number of of good comments. One person we talked to who actually had the the Tesla yes. with the autopilot. We got to learn a little bit more about that. True. We also had a Tesla owner who was quite disappointed in some ways. I mean, enjoyed the conversation, but but said you know was very critical of what he perceived as our kind of slagging on. Tesla. Which I did not perceive us to be doing at all. Well, and and if we did... So it was good to get that feedback because you, it's always good to hear a different perspective on, on what you said and how it sounded. I don't think I came across in the conversation as caught between two ideas as I actually am, as conflicted as I actually am. Because, mm. you know, as you know, I... You know, I, I ignore Atrios at my peril, and I'm a big believer in public <laughs> transit. Mm-hmm. And so all of all of that strikes me as, you know, and, and the enthusiasm for kind of techno-libertarians for these individual self-driving pods is long kind of bothered me in a way for some of the reasons Atrios right. gives. But on the other hand, I am, a, uh, I am an Elon Musk enthusiast, both for SpaceX and for Tesla. And I think these, the technologies he's building out, and more importantly, the, the companies he's building out, 
right. to deliver these things is really cool. I mean, it really interests me as a, you know, as a person and just thinking of, you know, the way that organizations get together and, and help to author our, our future. And there are all kinds of issues with it, just like there are with the SpaceX Mars thing that we alluded to, I think, but in the to, conversation. But to the degree but, that we were making the point that the, that the uh, current, uh, current available technology um, is not a good stopping point, that there's much more to accomplish on the road toward autonomous vehicles. If that's the point you're trying to make, you have no greater ally than Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. He himself does not think it's done. He right. doesn't think the project is complete. Yeah. He thinks they're, uh, they're a step in a direction which has a very different endpoint than right now. Yeah, he's just much which more... Which is the critique we were making about what's available right now. He's much more optimistic than those who would say this is four decades away, right, or three decades away. He right. thinks, you know, he can deliver something in a much shorter term. And, and he's equally clear that what we have, again, right now mm-hmm. is not what you would want finally to have. Yeah. But, okay, so we're going to just let the conversation speak for itself. I just wanted to kind of say at the outset that I'd get one of these cars if I could afford it. I'd love to have autopilot. I would be careful. I mean, I, there's this uncanny valley thing. We, we mentioned the show, so I don't want to right. talk about it again, but, but I, would, I would love to have one right now. And I'm looking forward to doing our show about Mars. When are we going to do that, Joe? Uh, I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. I've got a project in mind. Uh, I've got a title in mind. Oh, <laughs> what is that? Uh, the title of the episode about Mars will be called Flinging Corpses. Oh, boy. cheers listeners uh i couldn't disagree more but we will let that oral argument lie for another time all right let's go thank you uh and christian here we are back at the uh back at the tech law institute for the second or third year right third year maybe (laughs) second second or third two or three we don't i can't remember Um, this is the third yeah uh, the second year of doing the podcast here though that's it that's that's why I, there's two things to remember which is why i always right. have a foggy memory so uh in the reading uh we're going to be uh we're going to be talking about autonomous vehicles and legal issues relating to autonomous vehicle technology and in, in the booklet uh, you make it sound so exciting i know yeah. uh, it really is the future's here or is it <laughs> uh the uh in in the booklet uh there were two things uh that we provided uh and and i and the one that's second is actually the one that you might want want to glance at first, which is uh, a New York Times story, a brief story, about the release of a report from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, or NHTSA. Uh, The first item uh, that we gave you is uh, an excerpt from that NHTSA report. Uh, The NHTSA report is from maybe about a month ago or so. Uh, It's a very lengthy report. It's about a 200-page report. And uh, NHTSA and the Department of Transportation, of which it's a part, worked on this for quite a while uh, and uh, brought a lot of people together and obviously put a great deal of effort into coming up with a regulatory approach to use with uh, highly autonomous vehicles or or autonomous vehicles or AVs. Or self-driving cars. You could call them self-driving cars, sure. Uh, And uh, the, the New York Times story about the release of this report makes some points about uh, this, the regulatory environment and business investment that's uh, been brought to bear in this technology and some related points. Uh, something we didn't provide, although I'm sure we'll put it in the show notes, uh, is that the RAND Corporation uh, has been putting a bit of effort, it seems, into AV issues as well. And they've got a book that's now in its second edition, an ebook. Uh, that's also 200 plus pages about various uh, technological and regulatory issues that arise from autonomous vehicles. 
And of course, yesterday or the day before, there was a story about Tesla's latest announcement on uh, the autonomous vehicle technology they're going to make available in their next vehicle. And uh, and one sees news stories about this uh, on, a, on a fairly regular basis. So my question for you, Christian, oh is, um, you know, do, it, does it make any sense at all for there to be so much effort at the regulatory level, uh, you know, think tanks and all the rest, um, does it make any sense at all for people to be putting this much thought and effort into something, uh, into AV technology this early uh, in its development? Yeah, should we even be here? That's your question. Yeah, like, I mean, that's like, another way we, to rephrase it, yeah. right? Does the conversation we're about to have make a damn bit of sense? <laughs> is, there, is there any point at all to having a conversation Now, like for this? those of you who've heard our podcast, you'll know that if we applied that criterion, we would have zero episodes. That's a fair point. Right. So let's, let's put that to one side. And it, it, hmm. Because there's a, I lot, mean, of, a lot of brain power is being brought to bear on this. Yeah, thing. and so like, part of it is this like yearning for the future that we all have. Right, this uh, they seem really cool. It seems like Disney World gone mainstream in a way. Because we were promised flying cars, not just autonomous cars, but autonomous so, flying. So cars. in some sense, we're settling. Yeah, yeah totally. They're just driving themselves around. Exactly. Um, gr- ground autonomous vehicles is a huge letdown. Well, I mean, so one sense in which it makes sense to think about this now and put a lot of effort into it is that if you think that these are even twenty years away. The changes are that that it could work to infrastructure and to thinking about regulation. We'll get into this, like the sense in which they are regula- regulatorily different. You know what I mean? Like yeah. this is the idea that they're moving decision making from the driver back to the manufacturing stage that we'll talk about, right? But these are so profound that maybe we've got to like rethink and uh, regulations. We have to pass some new statutes. We have to do so. I, I get that aspect of it. So the breadth and depth of the issues that you'd have to work through and try to answer and plan for is so enormous relative to a lot of other technological changes that, right. that you might need a 20 year uh, uh, runway to get right. yourself going and changes to existing public works, whether they're roads or other. So I, I understand that, but like we've been discussing amongst ourselves there are skeptics about this technology. Right. Um, and, you know, maybe I'm prone to being excited about things. Like, I'm really excited about the Mars thing, right? Yeah, Elon Musk. I'm, I'm really excited about yeah. that. And so I'm prone to this kind of thing. I get it. And then I read, you know, one of my favorite bloggers, Duncan Black, Atrios, who has, what's the series of posts? We were just looking at one. Uh, not going to work. Not going to work is what it's called. And my, you know. A series was, on AVs. This is, you know, every post about them is not going to work. And so, so, you know, one thing that I've learned, like I was just telling you, over the past, like, decade and a half, is, you know, uh, Duncan makes falsifiable claims about the world, and you will go broke if betting against Atrios. You'll just go broke. So when he says not going to work and he has specific critiques, I pay attention to that. And the, well, the sense in which, let's just, should we talk about skepticism first? So well, there's a reason to be skeptical. And then there are also what he identifies as harms of focusing so much on self-driving cars. Before we do the harms, let's right. be a little more explicit about, about um, what it would mean. What skepticism implies, and optimism implies, I guess, equally, uh, some view about level of performance. So it would be helpful if we could if we could have some idea of what people imagine success for autonomous vehicles would look like, and it's more than cruise control. So right now, because yeah, we have that now, we have and we even have this adaptive cruise control. So there's, you know, it, it's already the case that some of the decision making is made in the car, right? right. And and that decision making is programmed at the manufacturing stage. And this is true. Like I think, and we were talking about this on the way up. I think that 
accelerator pedals in most cars are input devices rather than mechanically tied to the engine, right? There's a computer which determines fuel mixtures. It, that's if it's a traditional fuel vehicle. So there's already a lot of autonomous decision-making. It's very simple in right. cars. And that's even before you get to the ones that can parallel park by themselves or can uh, uh, keep a distance between a car and right. front, right? But we're talking about a different level of this. So, And, and I think fiction um, it can often be helpful and is helpful here. I mean, I think of success as something approximating um, and, and you could criticize me for having this view of success. Maybe you think it's much too optimistic, but but if if it if this technology pans out, in my mind, what that would mean is that a scene from Minority Report, Tom Cruise getting into the thing that you just say where you want to go and it takes you there, or Will Smith and iRobot, similarly, mm-hmm. right? Um, that that's what success looks like, right? Which is you you don't you just get in, say where you want to go, and it takes you there. And while you're on your way, you can read a book. You can write an email. You can, you know, if you, I'm a knitter, I like to knit. It's a hobby. You can knit some, uh, knit a scarf, whatever you want to do while you're on your way. Right? Because you have do like, not have to pay attention to the car at all. Aren't we going to have knitting machines at that point, though? You're going to no, have, so have to knit. That's why it's, but that's why it's such a great hobby is because I don't need to do it. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So, fair. So it's also a great post-apocalyptic skill. I realized the other day. Um, that I don't really have very many good post-apocalyptic skills. That's true. Uh, and I'm also a bit plump, so this is a problem, right? Because you don't want to be dinner. Um, <laughs> and so uh, I realized, though, that knitting is a great po- – I will be able to help people make different kinds of garments. And I think that's pretty cool. But I digress. You do. Um, uh, yeah. So, so uh, that to me, that's what success looks like. And right now – You so, step into right. a thing and it takes you somewhere. The closest that we have to the kinds of cars that NHTSA is spending over 100 pages writing about that uh, companies are investing millions of dollars into is, is Tesla's uh, autopilot, right? And the, ne- the announcement that they've made is to go – Basically, full EV. I mean, EV. See, I'm already like AV. What do they call it? Autonomous vehicle. <laughs> self-driving cars. Yeah. I mean, why can't we just say self-driving cars? So they promise they're going to go self-driving. They're going to put all the hardware in there. And, and, and the upshot is that it will have a summon feature. So if your car is in New York and you live in L.A., as one does, right, right. Uh, that you can dial up on your phone or whatever, just, hey, come get me, and the car will drive itself yeah. across the country. A parking. vehicle, and it yeah. will be on its way. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to be careful about how you say it. Like, you can't say... Hey, right. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, we know what we're oh. talking about. Yeah. Um, so, because it'll set off everybody's phones, correct? Right. Um, uh, so you can do that, right? And it will, and it will. So that's where they're going. But where they are now is you can take you can you could take your hands off the wheel. It doesn't want you to, right? And talking will, about a Tesla vehicle, the autopilot, right? Okay. The autopilot, which I guess according to the NHTSA classifications is what level two and a half. It's somewhere between level two and level three, and they put in the hardware to go to level five. I don't know. Somehow by giving these names, right, if we say, hey, this is a level four car, this is, it makes it seem more real, even though there aren't such things, right? The closest we have is this right. level two and a half. I, I, how many people, do, does anybody here have a Tesla with autopilot? Boom. Do you really? <laughs> I know her. This is like, <laughs> I know, it's pretty I, amazing. This is an actual, I, I might be able to ride in that car. I said before <laughs> the future was here and I was making a joke, but it turns out it is here. It's here in this She's room. She's sitting over there. It's yeah. a, have you used the autopilot? So, so you could, like, it, it tells you, hey, put your hands on the wheel, dummy, right? It tells you that every now and then. Otherwise, it'll, it won't do the autopilot anymore. Right. Um, and Now, interestingly, that's, to me, if, if I were thinking of success as you get in the vehicle and it takes you somewhere, Tesla's autopilot, as you've just described it, to me is, is the definition of failure. 
right? It's the Which uncanny that, valley, right? I have it's to, the uncanny I have valley to be there and I'm not driving, but I have to act as if I'm about to drive through the entire trip. Right. That is the worst possible circumstance. Right. So it's uh, so it's zero percent or a hundred percent of attention. That the car should either require zero percent of your attention or a hundred percent of your attention. Yeah. And, and one of one of Atrios's critiques, right, is that. These technologies aren't going to work because they're going to require ninety. Uh, you know, they're going to require two percent or three percent of our attention. Yeah, which is bad, right? Because if you're only paying three percent of attention, it means that when you are required to do something, right. it's going to take you a while to figure out that you need to do that. Not only is it bad, it might actually be worse. That's right. What I mean. So yeah. if, if the point of the technology and and the everything you read about this topic will at some point talk about the fact that. Uh, there are great gains to be made in public safety and in public health in reducing the number of accidents that cause either major injury, fatality, right? There's a, because we drive so many bajillions of miles every year, and because every bajillion miles something goes bad, right? Um, a lot of people die. A lot more people get hurt. Uh, give, so give, give the numbers, could, like 35,000 a year. Fatalities, about in the two US. and a half million uh, serious injuries. Serious injuries. Yeah. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of, that's a lot of uh, flesh uh, uh, getting uh, treated badly. So uh, if we made real gains here, right, if you could radically reduce the number of fatalities, uh, that's, a, that's a very important social benefit. Uh, and so uh, when you say, well, it's not quite going to work, well, that, you know, failing here is uh, we'd like to be able to succeed. We'd like to be able to reduce these in addition just to the cool, hey, gee whiz, I want the future now, there's also like 35,000 deaths is an enormous, like we're, there's an enormous opportunity cost in not pursuing things that could reduce th- that number of deaths. And right. that's not even counting the serious injuries and, 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 and the less serious injuries, right. you know, that cost. Uh, um, but so one of, and I don't want to belabor this too much, uh, but I do think since we're talking about it, we have to introduce, we have to be somewhat apologetic about talking about it if we take this criticism seriously. Um, the, the, the other thing is, like, if this is a technology which people are acting as though is going to get here within five years or seven years or ten years... When but it might f- actually be 30 or 40 or 50. Right. Then it takes regulators, legislators, and voters' eyes off of the lower-hanging fruit, whether it's... Tra- and, we, and, and he's already pointed to some of this, right, where uh, a belief that self-driving cars are just around the corner is saying, well, why should we invest in expensive transit right now, right? That is, um, when, like, I'm a suburban legislator or something, I'm thinking the best thing would be if my car just drives itself where I'm going. And that, and that just enhances the idea that we're going to double down on suburban land use patterns, that we're going to uh, invest less in, technolo- in, like, bus technologies and other things that could actually help the poor more than the wealthy. Like, there are real costs to pining for the future, right? And saying, well, we're not going to invest, we're just going to kick the can down the road on on uh, on rail or on buses, which are probably most helpful to the poor, and we just extend that suburban land use pattern that is gonna visit us with a lot of costs in the future, right? right? Whether it's the elderly being isolated, whether it's the poor having to depend on very long bus routes to get from one location to another. We're in Atlanta right now. Atlanta's well familiar with these problems of being spread out, right? Um, not the least of which we even did a show about this during the the, the epic snowstorm meltdown that you guys had a few years ago where where you saw that you know depending on roads is uh uh is you're just as vulnerable as other technologies like if you depended on a single train system and that train system (laughs) goes down you've got a real problem moving bodies around right and 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 people think well well, if we have roads and everybody has cars it kind of diversifies the risks but in fact if those roads uh get a look get a coating of ice on it you don't have snow removal equipment and other things you're 
you know, you're slowed down. So, so by talking about there, this, we're part of the problem. We are part of the problem, but we are, <laughs> we're used to being part of the problem. And we're right? a small part of the problem. So I think we'll go, we'll proceed. But like you say, there are enormous gains to be made. And so I think it is worth like for maybe for people, maybe we're special, Joe, maybe we can talk about this because we're not voting for anything, right? We're not, we're not <laughs> suggesting true. that we kick the can down the road and, and, no. and, and double down on these things. So should we go to the next area of yes. concern here? What do you want? There's so many things to talk about. The, right? it is, were, that's another remarkable thing. Another thing you notice when you start reading in this area is, is uh, in addition to the public health issue, um, is that you, you very quickly see the list of, of things that are affected. You see the domains and questions that get raised. Uh, and it is amazing how many things this touches. So many aspects of, order, of regular life uh, and the way law structures regular life. Uh, and, and so you could, you could pick just about any topic uh, and you'll wind up, there's, there winds up being an AV angle to it. So let, let's... One way to frame the problem, one way to frame the problem, if, if we think that these things are around the corner on any time scale, eventually we'll have to think about this, right, is that, you know, right now, um, manufacturers build something that individuals drive. And so the decision makers on the road are, are people with brains, and they're using these instrumentalities that, um, uh, that manufacturers have made. And the feds regulate these instrumentalities. They check to make sure that the brakes work and other things work as expected. And they're not too dangerous, and they ratchet up safety standards as they become more affordable. And, and, and let me stop you there. Right. So, so the main tool for the for and we're and we're we need to tackle who the regulators are and what governments are doing that regulating. So to try to get a, one's arms around this. So at the federal level, uh, it looks to me like we have the Department of Transportation's. Uh, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, and the word safety is right there in the title, right? Creating safety standards. So we're going to specify standards of safety, and any equipment that's sold out there in the marketplace has to be equipment that complies with that safety standard. That's the basic approach to the federal regulatory level. So there's a very, the, the machine, the object, is the thing the national government is regulating in the national marketplace for cars, right? Which you can buy and then drive somewhere else. So that's the and interstate market. And preemption here. And the manufacturers want this. They don't want to build a California car Absolutely and a Nevada right. car and a Georgia car. They want to build one car that they can sell in all 50 states. And uh, for all kinds of reasons, right. uh, w- once you get that kind of power aligned, upon, that, that's the law. The law so, is strict preemption here. Of, of So state law is regulating standards. the driver both in the, well, state law is regulating the driver in the sense of what kind of uh, license do you need to get? What do you need to do to prove you're uh, entitled to that license? What kind of performance on your part might jeopardize your continued ability to How use that license? How impaired can you be before you drive? Can you drive if you've had you know, seizure, a seizure disorder? Right. Uh, how fast can you go on this road? How fast can you go on that road? What if it's raining? Um, can you turn right on red? All of these decisions are regulated by... Right law and by the things which show us what the law is on and the then road. state law is also the the sort of reservoir of personal injury law right? right so if there is an accident that harms property or another person state law is also going to provide you the rule of decision about what to do in that context usually but well oftentimes by measuring what people decided and asking whether what people decided when they were driving was reasonable and in some states, going to no fault, and you know, we could talk about that. Right, but, and, the, yeah. and, the, and the way it touches back to the federal level, I think, is if, the, if your theory of injury, your theory of, of what went wrong that produced this accident, is uh, some problem with the design of the vehicle. Uh, 
right? So not a decision made by the driver, but rather a decision made by the person who produced the car. Now we're back in, we're in product liability. Uh, that's still state law, but of course it has implications for federal safety standards because the card maker is probably going to argue, wait a minute, how could I be liable to you for doing something wrong and designing the car poorly if I complied with the federal safety standards? So you get in the sort of standard preemption arguments about the, the state law consequence of the yeah. federal regulatory project, right? This is just, and we're just getting the lay of the land as it is right now. So right? self-driving this is what cars, the laws like. so self-driving cars have the effect of moving that decision-making back to the manufacturing stage. And now the feds, when they evaluate software, how is the car going to decide what to do when? How right. is it programmed to do this? Is it adequate? Is, in a way, like back in time. You know, they're, and you're they're, saying this because the thing that's making the decision now is the car. Right. Like in a very important way, what success looks like in this domain is the driver is making many, many, many fewer decisions. And about, we, were, we were arguing about, about this, but you know, this is just another instance of like anything you can think of in life that would be better if it were a computer is going to become a computer. Right. And the software people who have expertise in software are going to dominate that market. Yeah. Right. And we were arguing a little bit about this earlier about like, who would you expect to be the winners in a in a in a self-driving car world? Would it be the would it be the software folks or would it be the existing car folks? I was strongly in favor of software companies. True. And you think, eh, meh. yeah, I'm not as sure. Yeah. But, um, so so this this observation you've made about. We're, we're moving the, the sort of the locus of decision-making into the vehicle itself, which means if something goes wrong, right, we're not talking about a driver misjudgment. We're talking maybe about a software design mistake or a hardware design mistake. Or, or, or um, just a choice, which, I mean, because those choices imply risks. Every choice you make implies risk. Right, point. right? I mean, even my decision, our decision to drive here from Athens, right. we imposed and externalized Risks on everybody else that we could have had an accident with. Right? You we did a great job. I, I did all right. Yeah, I did all right. We um, got here. So, so the, the, the reason why I think this is a really important observation is because as the terrain of liability, uh, the rules for, again, dealing with uh, when bad things happen, um, the, 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 the pressure point in the relationship between the national government and the state government is exactly the thing you just pointed to, which mm-hmm. is liability theories predicated on how the machine is designed, not on because that's what conflicts arguably in a given case with the federal safety standards. So this NHTSA document, what was your impression of the NHTSA document's position on the role of the national and the state governments? I mean, I think it... It said, hey, the existing relationship should stay the same. States, you regulate what happens on your roads, the decisions which are made in real time on your roads. By, by people. By, the exactly. decisions made by drivers. Exactly, exactly. Right. And, and we will regulate cars, which, by the way, now includes pre-programmed decision-making. Right. And so, and, so and they were staking out that territory. They were, they were staking out that territory pretty strongly, yep. pointing to their preemption, uh, the, the preemption doctrines. And, and so it stakes out a lot of additional power that NHTSA will have. Maybe appropriately, I think probably appropriately, right? So there won't. Uh, um, well, it's certainly what vehicle producers would want again, because it makes single. You have a national AV, not a, a Georgia version, Alabama version, Connecticut version, etc. Right. So a simple version of this, and I don't know if this is you know, it, like when I pro- if I were to program how how closely, and imagine a car with no steering wheel, no brakes, anything. It's two seats which are facing each other, with a little table in the middle, and you're playing board games while you're driving across so the country, cool, right? right? And 
and in, in the car is right. programmed, how closely should I follow another car? And how should I communicate with that other car? And the question is, like, who regulates that software to decide whether that decision is safe? And, um, and can Nevada have a law that says self-driving cars have to stay at least X feet apart? And that hopefully meters by then. Don't yeah. you think? Yeah. Well, uh, and uh, can, can Nevada whatever. say X meters and California says Y meters? Uh, or, or is that a design decision which is, regulated, which is part of the car now? And if it's part of the car now, then NHTSA regulates that, right? You keep saying NHTSA, I keep thinking of lice. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, but it is what it is. It is right? what you got. That's the acronym you, they chose. Um, and that document is full of acronyms, by the way. Oh, so yeah. many acronyms. So yeah, you're, you know, it, it is interesting that you could you could have. It, but for, the funny thing about software, let me let me. Do you mind if I interrupt you? I don't mind at all. Okay, all right. I just want to make sure. Uh, Go right ahead. If right now, please. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, so so the thing about software is that it. That it, that it does, you know, make the, it does put these decisions in, into the design and, and manufacturing stage. But also, you know, these vehicles can tell whether they're in California or Nevada. So mm. it is somewhat cheaper. You don't have to build a whole California car or Nevada car. You could have software with a flag that says, hey, I'm in California. I need to follow X meters. And if I'm Nevada, Y meters. Right. We talked about this a little bit on the way right. up, too. And so the cost of having 50 different scenarios is lower than the cost of manufacturing 50 different physical cars that have, you know, brakes that work this well in California and with this much force in Nevada. Like, that's, that's the thing that's super expensive and that the manufacturers don't want. Now, of course, they're going to push for preemption. They want to make one set of software. But could states legitimately have different preferences about how, maybe based on, you know, how often the roads are icy and wind and how much traffic there is, how many big cities, or just maybe people's taste for risk versus speed? Right? Maybe there are, you know, so we've imagined this world where every, there are no steering wheels, no brakes, and cars are going about 120 miles per, miles per hour and, and following each other at about a meter, right? Yeah. Um, eventually, you know, as you pointed out in the RAND document, points out that, you know, that scenario gives us a lot of gains and maybe even far fewer accidents, but when an accident does happen, it's going to be a bunch of people all at once. Yeah, right? a very large catastrophe. So possibly, and maybe states say, no, we don't want that. You know, yeah. you got to go slower, you got to follow. So how do you think that works well, out? Well, you know, it, it seems to me very predictable that states would have radically different preferences because of their radically different population densities. I would think that, um, uh, you know, in, in Montana or Nebraska, uh, the top rate of speed uh, and uh, I don't I don't know about how that interacts with the, the closeness of the nearest vehicle and your ability to travel at that speed at a, uh, given the another vehicle's presence. Uh, that complicates things a little bit. But I would think that the the maximum speed that the state of Nebraska or Wyoming might be willing to might might very much like people to travel um, w- could be quite a bit higher than the maximum speed of the state of New York, which has a very different population density profile. Uh, and so. Uh, your point about the fact that uh, the very same technologies that allow the vehicle to perform in this way would also allow for the vehicle to be programmed using, you know, a GPS and other similar ideas, uh, allow the vehicle to perform differently depending on where it's located. I mean, that m- seems to thread the needle, right? Um, let different jurisdictions. In fact, by that point, wh- why would it only be states, right? Why couldn't cities say, look, in our city, 
And you could even automate it at the point of every jurisdiction's got a transponder signal that it sends out to vehicles that are within the range of that transponder that simply tells the vehicles what the parameters yeah, are for vehicles in that area. On the other side, um, now, like now, we've, got, now we've got like. a lot more complexity, right? And the one thing that makes software fail is complexity. And, and, and you, could even, <laughs> you could even describe, like, like the arc of, you know, from, from the early days of, uh, 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 you know, of, of DOS and early Mac OS to, to now OS X and, and the latest Windows, whatever, right. whatever it is. Uh, like the development of like object-oriented programming and, and basically paradigms that allow you to work on things in a, at hierarchies that are simpler, right? And, and eliminating complexity in the task dramatically reduced the number of errors. Right, and, and that's hard to believe because of how many bugs we seem to tolerate in software. But that it wouldn't even be possible to make software that even ran with at the complexity levels that we have without programming paradigms that simplify things. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know why I raise that, other than to say that if NHTSA's task is going to be to say, okay, if we approve this car, and we'll get to pre-approval and how this works in just a second, but if we say this car is safe to drive on the roads and we allow it to be driven on the roads, um, we are not just saying that licensed drivers who drive reasonably, this won't present an an unusual kind of danger. We're saying we're going to unleash a whole set of behaviors onto the road now, which are programmed into this car. And that evaluation, to the extent that this this vehicle can behave in 50 different ways, or as you say, per jurisdiction, maybe thousands of different ways, like like that's much harder to evaluate, but it's also much harder to, now I've got to check the the uh, the Clark County programming for this vehicle and is you know is there some bug which only manifests when the right. w- when the car is following at less than 0.5 meters because it throws some kind of error flag or something they did like who knows how you're going to find all those things so I, I think the complexity issue is one reason since when we're talking about software to try to for preemption I don't know if anybody's really thought about that before talking yeah, about it yeah and I, I think it's uh, well. We're going to have to find a place, and it may change over time, but what what you've been saying makes me think we have to find a place, we have to find the right uh, place to locate the regulatory authority, uh, given that uh, we could probably put it anywhere. Right. I mean, you we, you could imagine a world where if 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 information processing had no cost uh, and uh, so you could let every homeowners association come up with its own automated vehicle specification that the little transponder in the neighborhood is sending out to the vehicles. Right? That sounds I just mean, great, that, by the way. Because <laughs> um, homeowners associations are known right. for their rational decision-making. Right, absolutely. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, they make such good decisions. <laughs> they do. Um, but they, they'll be, they want to talk about the color of the car, I guess. Oh, uh, yeah, probably. Uh, the... the um, but but at the, and so at the other end of the spectrum uh, would sort of be you know there's a single body within the United Nations that sets global autonomous vehicle specifications. So somewhere in between those two locations is probably the place we want to be, and uh, figuring out where it is uh, and how it might change over time, given the way the technology itself is an input into the right the the what the answer to the question what's the best level of government turns in part on what the technological capabilities actually are. Uh, and so the, getting this right over time is going to be one of the interesting challenges, I think, here. Two quick issues, and then I think we should take some questions. Okay. Uh, the one is, um, the, 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 one other thing that comes up in this NHTSA document is the way that NHTSA should approve of these things, since it's going to be doing something radically different than it's done in the past, right? right. Which is approving, it's, it's basically doing what states do when they license drivers. Like, are you safe? Right? Are you safe? How do you handle these situations? Right. And now NHTSA is going to be doing that, uh, basically, but, but conceptually. Like, 
are you safe by looking at this programming and thinking of all these scenarios, right? So how are we going to do that? Like one way is to have manufacturers self-certify in kind of the way that they already do, right? You know, show us that you've done these tests and what you're using, et cetera. Another is like, and they analogize this and have actually talked to this agency, is like the FAA certifies airplanes. And, and, and there you have to, uh, before you can offer your article for sale, here it would be cars, you have to demonstrate that to the satisfaction of the agency that you've met all of these standards, whatever they are, and that's going to be hugely complicated to figure out what those right. should be. The FAA points out to NHTSA, um, this works for us, but it's not like there is a new model year of the 777 every year, right? Or hundreds of different kinds of airplanes. I mean, there are many different kinds of airplanes, but not all that many huge airliners, which are really complex, right? right. Uh, and have all of this automation in them, actually. So they're dealing with very low throughput at the FAA on this yeah. regulatory track. So the, there's a very real question about whether NHTSA could cope as an agency with evaluating software. I mean, they're basically asking the government to do something. I don't know that it's really, I mean, maybe the FAA, and I don't, I don't know the full story of how they are testing the software in, in airplanes. Um, that's an area where, of course, the airplane manufacturers also have a strong incentive to get this stuff right, right? And, yeah. and it's actually, in many ways, air travel is a lot easier than road travel. Mm. Just because, you know, there aren't kids running across the, across the sky with balls, right? right. <laughs> An airplane is going to hit. There, that's just one reason, right? Yeah. Um, so we're, in one way, the government's being asked to do something like the software companies have been trying to do forever, which is trying to figure out whether this code works, right? Are, how do you build that capacity? Um, how, do you, how do you even do that? We, we also talked about the FDA analogy. Like, right. you know, so you have to a, demonstrate safety and efficacy. Here it would mainly be safety, right? But we're going to... St- we don't know how this thing is going to behave once well, it gets into the wild. as well. I mean, the FDA drug approval process, and there's, and there's two tracks within the FDA, one for medical devices, which is less demanding, one for uh, things sold as medications, as drugs, which is more demanding. Um, and, and that safety and efficacy data uh, and, and uh, presentation that a drug maker needs to provide before they're entitled to sell the drug at all, uh, th- th- that... Um, that, that basic criterion, it needs to be safe, uh, and it needs to actually do the job it's being s- sold as doing, right? Um, I think that is a decent way to think about what these cars should be like. Maybe. They should be safe, and they should actually function as, uh, as vehicles that successfully get you from point A to point B. The FCC, different agency, right? Um, the FCC has uh, programs for approving various uh, radio signal emitting devices uh, and uh, because technically the use of spectrum has to be licensed uh, by the FCC. Uh, so they've got a, an approval process set of mechanisms. So they actually, I think, are multiple agencies that have experience managing pre-approval processes of various sorts. Uh, and this is another thing that's going to have to get hammered out. Yeah, I guess. I mean, some people would argue, including me, I think, that the that FDA approval process plus patents equals madness, right? I mean, in terms of the kinds of drugs, right? Like, it's just the kinds of drugs that are where, where there's, like, inventive effort going. I mean, okay, so let, let's put, let, maybe people have questions well, about yeah, that. I want to ask you one more thing, though. This is no, about I want to say, my, before, no, you no, me, no, no, before you no, ask, no, I want to no, say one so, so the other, of course, the other model uh, isn't, isn't based on approval uh, before the fact at all. This is not what NHTSA, that's not the direction they're going. Congress could pass a statute that They says, have to pass a statute um, to do this because they don't says, have pre-approval look, authority. Look, it's all, yeah. all going to be after the fact. Build what you want. People will ensure what they want. People will get mowed down or not, whatever. 
Um, it's not quite that. Work way, it out. You, uh, work it out after the fact. It's called tort law. Um, go do your thing, right? And, and that safe, would be another approach also to safe, figuring out what works and doesn't work. Hmm? Safe, they have. They would basically they would. Uh, they would do some kind of approvals as they do now, which is about certain kinds of certifications, and then they would have recall authority and other things. I mean, there are, there are you things could they decide would do. to do. I'm, what I'm saying yeah. is, you, I'm just trying to get on the table the fact that the the very notion of pre-approval is itself a very important regulatory choice. Let's suppose, which you could make in a very different way and say we don't want any kind of pre-approval at all. Suppose for a second, contrary to the last two decades, that okay. Atrios is wrong. Okay. Okay. And that these and self-driving cars will get here within the next two decades, right? Level five cars, according to these leveling schemes, right? Yep. These are the ones where you can summon them from across the country. No, you know, you can just sit back and relax, and it all works. Okay. Um, so Michael Dorf wrote this piece for I think it's his verdict column. Is that yep. right? Rather than his regular blog. Right. Um, and we've actually talked about this on the show before, either with Frank Pasquale or with Ryan Kalo or with both. Uh, we'll link them both up in the show notes. But uh, should we allow people to drive their own cars at that point? Yeah, once this technology exists, uh, isn't there an excellent argument to be made that people should not be permitted to drive? Uh, because the, they, they are radically unsafe relative to automated vehicles. Well, and one way to think about this is imagine. I don't think there's any, I, I can't think of a reason in principle. To answer no, try I can to think imagine of a reason right. in practice, but right. not in principle. So we got thirty-five thousand deaths a year. We got all you know, two and a half million in serious injuries, untold numbers of fender benders and property damage. And but but imagine we're in a world where there already are these self-driving cars, and everybody's you know used to these. They get in these little personal pods or these bigger bus type things, and they yeah. zip around. Uh, and there aren't that many injuries. Occasionally, there's you know, it's like airplanes. Occasionally, one goes down, and it's very sad, and a lot of people are lost. Maybe that's happens i don't don't know maybe hopefully that doesn't happen very often um and then some person says you know what i've built this like hobby car and it's got this controller in it and i can drive around too can i drive on the public roads i think if you were in that scenario and you were thinking about whether to let this person (laughs) drive their hobby vehicle among all of these other things you'd say i think the answer would be hell no don't you think i mean more than you want me near a belt sander or a power drill i mean no like don't let it happen he'll injure himself he'll injure someone else I don't use those things. I think you have to put yourself in that position of, of the world where these things are zipping around, they're safe, and someone says, I want to be the computer. Instead, right now, we're thinking, can the computer be us? Right. But the other world is, uh, you got people for hobby reasons or for, you know, I don't know, God live America, it's my right reasons, Yeah. saying, uh, I want to be the computer. I want to take back what's mine. Uh, it's almost like a, you know, w- will there be like a, an equivalent of like the Second Amendment fundamentalist about driving cars or another computer example would be you know someone says tomorrow look i i just would like to do this week's coca-cola payroll by hand (laughs) can i do that and you know do all the direct deposit stuff you would say no in fact you would say hell no yeah Uh, because the number of errors you would get and the and the impact that would have on people's lives and they're not getting paid would be terrible right it's just much easier to you know if you just think of complexity again it's much easier to program machines that know they're dealing with other machines and can talk to other machines if a machine has to figure out has to account for the fact that somebody may drive recklessly drunk or whatever that's a much harder program. Of course, this, you still have to count for like kids running out in the middle of the road. And this may be right? the hardest transition of all, the fact that it's, uh, it, it's much easier for me to imagine a world where there's basically pretty much only AVs or pretty much only what we have now. The hardest world to imagine is when there's sort of half and half. Yeah. Because that world is very difficult 
to to figure out how to get the AV part to function properly. Yeah. Uh, given that half of the cars are driven by us and we're not as reliable. All right, we got about fifteen more minutes, maybe. Yeah. So qu- thoughts and are questions there, from the audience. What, what AV issues that we should be thinking yeah, about? Yeah, and we're, we're going to repeat your question, otherwise it's not going to pick up. So, so the question is, uh, a lot of people have things like horse trailers and, and, and other, other reasons why they need to go off the beaten path with a vehicle, like um, out into the woods, on dirt roads, sure. uh, you know, go backpacking, I like climbing. A lot of those trailheads are off on, uh, on places that are not, you know, paved otherwise. Uh, how will AV, how will self-driving trucks or cars deal with this situation? What do you think, Joe? Well, I think any... Uh any activity for which there is sufficient demand, there will be an AV version, right? So I don't think there will be AV horse trailers because I don't think there will be a sufficient quantity of demand for oh, yeah, there to be. Yeah. I mean, because it's, it's, it's not like you have to make only a horse trailer, right? You're making basically an AV. Ah, you're so making you, a self-driving truck. An AV adaptable trailer that could carry a horse or some other similar It knows how much object. it's carrying. And yeah. Right. And so okay. there are two, kind of two points. A large points. animal AV. Or a lav, um, uh, sure, uh, you know maybe, uh, but, but 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 part of the question is about the off-road part. Like, how does it negotiate? Well, the actually, off-road? In I, a I think funny it could way, be that better, don't in you? In a funny way, yeah. The, in in a funny way, it, it, in a way, I would think some of this technology would be the the very notion of road will itself change, and be less consequential. Uh, that the uh, the vehicle's ability to navigate uh, terrain that's far different in uh, a far larger range of uh, terrains that could be successfully navigated. Why not? I mean, if that's what people want. And there might be more off-road tracks for people who say, you know what, I want to d- drive a car the old-fashioned way with my hands mm, and with my foot, that's, right? Yeah, that's so, how we deal with the people who want to drive. You create little uh, theme parks yeah, uh, where people are, are permitted to drive uh, because they're hermetically sealed environments. Well, they're like shooting ranges in a way, if we carry the Second Amendment analogy, right? Like you want to yeah, fire your driving. gun. Exactly. A lot of neighborhoods don't allow you just to fire your gun, right? You can go. You fair point. But, but there are shooting ranges and people enjoy it and they can get that Absolutely. enjoyment there without putting other people at risk. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I, we'll see. Yeah. In the back. So, so the question is um, uh, expressing some skepticism that the American people will ever give up their God-given right to drive a vehicle. And, uh, and that, that the technology has to adapt to people's preferences about this rather than the other way around. Um, I am actually less, um, I, I'm, I'm less skeptical about people's willingness to give up driving than I am about the other things. And, and the reason is that, I mean, you can look at demographics, you know, talk about kids these days, right? This is, mm. this is actually another Atrios thing. The kids are all right. Like yeah. he hates people who beat up on millennials, but, um, uh, that, uh, kids care a lot less about driving than we olds do, right? Uh, um, and yeah, they just they just care less about about they, they want to drive. They they they're getting their driver's licenses later. I mean, I saw some data a couple years ago about this. And now I realize we're in Atlanta, and and Atlanta is a car city. Um, there are other places that are less car focused, and and so I think you will see heterogeneous preferences. Um, I, I think, you know, will we leave it up to state law to ban human drivers? And so you'll have states like Georgia where you've got a lot of human drivers and then states like Connecticut where they're like, get out of here with your human driving. I, you know, I don't <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, I think people's preferences are diverse on that. But I think um, and people's preferences will are will also be a target for influence and for change. Yeah. Uh, the people who stand to gain from 
there being a much greater diffusion of AV technology will try to persuade people to have that taste because they stand to gain. And if you, uh, so they'll, they'll yeah. put resources into making the case for life in that version being better than life in this version. It may work, it may not, time would tell. But, but I, think it's, I think what we don't need time to be able to tell is that whoever stands to be advantaged by transitioning to that technology will be spending some of their money today getting people to believe that world is better than this one. And, and, and you don't they? get to choose any mix. I mean, it may be, and this is the, like we're speculating, this is the kind of thing that, you know, but uh, uh, it may be that only by getting the human driver out of it can you take full advantage of what the, uh, of what the uh, self-driving car can do. And look, I've seen I-85 around 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, right? And, and, and I think people would want <laughs> the ability to have a car where they are reading and doing other things. I, I, I think people would say, yeah, that's awesome. And what if I told you you can only get that if there aren't any human drivers. Like, you get to choose between those two worlds. And it's like, well, I really like driving on, on Sundays, like out, you know, to see the leaves up in the mountains. And I don't know if I'd like that as much as just not having, you know, just looking. Although I, I don't sympathize with this because I hate driving. Uh, I don't hate it, but like, I don't, I don't care about cars. Uh, so I'm the wrong person to ask this question. But I don't know that we get to choose to live in both worlds. We might. Maybe the, maybe the software will be such that it, yeah, we have human drivers. Who cares? It'll cope as well with that. And, and the human drivers are not actually externalizing a bunch of risk because the self-driving cars are smart enough to avoid it. And they're not, if it's that world, then maybe we can have both. But I don't know that we know that yet. Um, I, I'm not sure. What do you think? Um, I, I think we don't know yet. Um, and I think I won't be surprised when Tesla starts running ads featuring people who have lost limbs in car accidents because they'll have a story to tell about how, you know, if only I'd had this technology, oh maybe I'd still have an arm or still have a leg or, a, I mean, be, why would Tesla do that? Because they'd benefit from doing it. So you're not a professional advertiser, I think, are you? I mean, it's like, <laughs> I think that I, you could make a great, that you could make a very sympathetic, ever. no, no, it would be very sympathetic. It would be a, about the power of technology to, to make our lives better. Look, I, uh, I understand the appeal as much as anybody of buy our, proje- uh, buy our product or die. Like that's, a, that's a powerful message. It is a powerful yeah, but, message. Um, yeah, yes. when you want to be careful. with Other questions. Who else has a question for us? So who's going to pay for this transition uh, when we have people who are driving, did you say $2,000 cars? Well, I, as someone who's just has an 18-year-old son who's just started driving, the costs of driving are a lot more than the price of the car. Um, I think his insurance alone is like, costing us an additional thousand or so dollars every six months. I mean, it's just like, I, I can't believe it. I just, in fact, I want, I, want, I want to leave here right now and go mow some lawns or something to like <laughs> earn the money to, to pay for this. So uh, I'm not sure car ownership has ever been that egalitarian. Yeah, a lot of people drive who, who, don't, who aren't wealthy, but they're, the poor are oftentimes, you know, they have to use buses. And bus routes are people will be on a bus for like two hours because owning a car, you know, it's, it's a gas, but it's also the, it's the insurance, the price right. of the car. And, and in it, people who are income sensitive, you know, the transmission goes out or something happens and it's right. like, you, you don't, you can't make that payment. Some so. of the industry projections here involve very different models. So, so they, so people won't own cars. Transportation will be a service and you'll pay that time when the vehicle, when you hail the vehicle, it picks you up at point A, drops you off at point B. It's owned by the firm that runs the service business, and you're just paying the increment to get from A to B. 
Um, and so in that sense, it might make that kind of transportation much more affordable for people who right now maybe couldn't afford a car and the insurance and the gas and the whatever. Because insurance is much less expensive because there are fewer accidents. And, and, and so even though you would pay the insurance by paying the fare, right, that, right. that cost is a lot less. Also, cities would kind of get out of the car storage business. So one of Atlanta's biggest businesses, I think, is storing cars. Uh, you, you know, you walk down downtown and it's, you know, there's a building and then there's a parking lot or a parking right. structure. And these are like dead zones for pedestrians and all kinds of opportunities that a city can't take advantage of because it's doing so much car storage. Right. So all that goes away because these vehicles are always employed. They're doing always something. flowing. They're always flowing. And uh, so maybe, you know, democratization works like I would certainly prefer that as you know, I would prefer not to own a car. It's very expensive to own a car. I would prefer not to own it and just pay for my usage as a service. That appeals to me. I know for people who like to wash their cars on Saturday and, uh, you know, and do the wax and all the, uh, do you, do you wax a car? You do, right? I do not. Wax on, wax off. Is I do that, not do that. I no. no. I didn't say you, but a person. I do not pay someone to do that either. I don't know. Well, I just wait for it to rain. Nice. Yeah. Uh, but, but some people enjoy this. They enjoy car ownership, right? And, and, so for them, maybe they would want their own personal pod to carry them around. But for a lot of people, I think it would be like, I just want to get the nearest one. It'll drop me off. I don't have to pay to park it. I don't have to do anything else. I get out and they're always kind of around. Like taxis are in New York. And, you know, and a lot of people don't like owning a car is a hassle in New York, right? If you're super rich, you own a car in New York. But if you're not, like, why? Right? And, and, and so uh, because it's easy to take a taxi and now it's easy to do Uber. And well, I don't know if we want to get into Uber and everything. Do we? You're looking, at really. me, you're looking at me vacantly. Okay, we should take more questions. Yeah, great, great question. So, so the question is, the question is, how will you know? Either how will it evolve, or, or what will be the regulations in terms of a uh, of an autonomous vehicle's ethics? Will they all obey the three laws of robotics, or will they have different ethical trade-offs? And in the market, you choose which one appeals to you. And I'm glad you raised this for a couple of reasons. One, it was just in the news about, I think it's a Mercedes exec going off script. So I don't know that we can attribute this to Mercedes. But one of the common things that people in this area have written about are trolley problems, right? The old philosophical trolley problems that most people are probably familiar with. But the idea, you know, you've got... Two, you're on a track and you're going to hit somebody if you continue down this track, but you can switch tracks. And if you switch tracks, you'll hit some other people. And it's usually like there are two people on this one, but one person on that one. And so it's testing our intuitions about whether if I move to the other one, I kill fewer people, but I intentionally did that. I'm somehow responsible for that person. It's kind of plumbing in the depths of our intuitions about responsibility, right. our kind of moral cognition about these things. And a human driver makes those kinds of trade-offs. Maybe not very often. I wonder how often you really make those things. There was this guy who came by the law school from the University of Chicago. I forgot who it was who did a he's doing an empirical study of he was testing spousal love, he said, <laughs> by testing how often people swerve to the right in an incoming accident versus swerve to the left. Like how often do they expose like when they can't think about it, how often do they expose themselves to danger versus the spouse who's in the other seat? Mm. Um it's exactly the way that a Chicago person would study love, don't you yeah. think? Yeah. yeah. Nothing says love like swerve rates. We, we love our law and economics friends from Chicago, right? And so Frank Pasquale's written about this in Slate recently, yeah. and we've Very talked recently. about this on the show. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, but anyway, one of these Mercedes execs went off script and said something like, they're going to program it so that it saves the occupant. Right. Yeah. And, and, and he said a little bit more than that. Sort of like, oh, you know, the people outside the car, you don't know anything about them. Who are they? What are they? You know, whatever. Save the guy in the car. 
It, so uh, that's so what it's we'll like do. this, right? So you you see a um, you see a, a, a semi <laughs> coming quickly it, retreats from this. You see a semi coming at you, uh, com- coming down the road, and and there are a group of kids in front of the semi, and the semi swerves into your lane, coming at you. Do you swerve into the other lane, killing the kids, or do you stay in the lane with the semi? Like that's the. The, and it's just a the, restatement of the trolley problem. Yeah. I mean, one way you could do these tro- – all right, we're not answering your question. We keep answering the trolley problem. The, 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 the trolley problem, um, the classic one, you're heading down and you're going to hit three people. If you swerve, you could hit only one. And it's trying to get you to think about, well, you know, one life is two fewer than three lives, so why wouldn't you hit the one? If you have to hit something – why wouldn't you hit the one instead of the three? Of course, you could restate the trolley problem. You're heading toward three people. There's a button in your vehicle which will instantaneously immolate you, the vehicle, and it, well, it's just one life versus three, oh right? Yeah. You don't put, you don't phrase it that way. Why? Because you know no one will do that. No one would choose suicide over hitting the three people. They said there's got to be another solution, right? Well, that's um, that. That's kind of the. Calabrese and Bobbitt tragic choices model that what society does in situations like this is to reframe everything, embrace a, another value, and, there, and therefore submerge the problem, right? And pretend like it's not a real problem. And so instead of rhetoric about are we going to choose to kill the three rather than the one, we'll talk about the ways in which we are optimizing safety um, for everybody. Right? right, we're designing it not to have these conflicts, and I think that's how it's going to be. Like, no, no one is going to do what he, what this guy did again. Right, right. And, and the answer you see, and and virtually every document, again, in AV, you read this literature. There are some themes that come up repeatedly. This is one of them. Uh, the the what do you do about hitting other people problem, uh, and and I think the co- the most common answer seems to be. Um, you, you keep working on the problem so that that's not what's happening. So that's not the choice people are facing. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, you try to keep reframing it so that you're talking instead about how can you get the vehicle to gracefully degrade and divert so that it's simply not in the presence of a situation where it has to choose between the occupant and someone outside the vehicle. But we, we, we're experts at this and, and at, at naturalizing risks that we would rather not talk about. So, you know, I live two miles from where I work, and, and usually I walk, but sometimes I'll drive. My decision to drive imposes a risk of death and injury on others that walking does not. There are other, you know, there are, you can trace costs out. You can, you can trace these tendrils of causation out a million miles to all kinds of things, right? But, um, but I, no one thinks of that as a risk because my intention is not to injure anybody when I drive. So I, I'm going to drive safely, and that's somehow, I'm even, I'm more virtuous the more safely I drive, even though my initial decision externalized a bunch of risk on other people, in- including me. I assume some of it, right? So there's some reciprocality there. Right. But, um, but we're, no one thinks about it as being necessarily a selfish choice to choose to drive, even with the pollution effects and climate change and the safety externalities, right? But it is in a way. It is a, it is a selfish choice. But we can't live if we don't make selfish choices uh, often, right? We just, we, we would not be able to navigate life. Uh, so, it may be a critical aspect of, and this is what Calabresi and Bobbitt say in their volume, right? That the, the measure of a society, I think they say, is in the striving, right? That we we inevitably recycle these values and exalt some and submerge others, and we just cycle through these. And they give the example of the draft, uh, how we conscript for, and, and how we uh, allocate kidneys and things. It just happens. Do we have time for one more, or no? Who's got a quick zinger? Who wants to tell us we did a bad job? That would work. That would that would fit in there, right? Well, you can tell us that anytime. Yeah, pe- yeah, people do, right? 
Absolutely. Yeah. We got nothing? Okay, oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. Drop us a line. And uh, in your podcast uh, application on your telephone, we are just search for Oral Argument. You'll find us. You can hit subscribe. And automatically, every week, or at least most weeks. Most weeks. Boom, it just lands there, and you get a new episode. So thanks, Thanks everyone. for having us. Appreciate it.